0: How do we create the conditions for a future-fit economy? I started this podcast to help people discover why circular, regenerative and fair solutions are better for people, planet and prosperity. Some people think going circular means swapping a few materials or making things a bit more recyclable. But that's not enough and can even cause more problems than it solves we're up against massive challenges with a fragile planet finite and depleted resources and people everywhere under pressure it's time to reimagine our future to do better with less and that's where this podcast comes in disruptors are already putting this at the heart of their business strategies using circular and regenerative approaches to deliver deeper value for all their stakeholders, including customers, workers, investors, and our living planet. I'm Catherine Wheatman, author of A Circular Economy Handbook, and I'll be chatting with inspiring people who are challenging business as usual and rethinking how we design, make, and use everything you'll find the show notes and links at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to podcast updates and the Circular Insights newsletter. Hey there, welcome back. It's episode 115, and we're exploring the broader context of a future fit economy, asking questions like, how do we create the conditions for circular solutions to gain traction? What's holding us back, particularly when we think about our economic systems and the way companies are set up? In today's episode, I'm talking to Paddy LaFloofy about his book, Building Tomorrow, Averting Environmental Crisis with a New Economic System. And that was published in March this year. Paddy's aim is to work out how we can improve our own society and improve the lives of the billions of people currently affected by the dominant global systems. In A Circular Economy Handbook, I included a chapter on enablers and accelerators for the circular economy. And today we're going to explore a couple of important ideas that fit into those categories. Concepts that aren't circular in themselves, but are important ways to help circular approaches have even more impact. Before embarking on this project in 2015, Paddy had a somewhat different life. After a degree in mathematics at Cambridge University in the UK, Then qualifying as an accountant at KPMG in London, he lived something of a double life. He worked as a finance specialist in London for six months at a time and then used his money to live in remote places alongside people whose lives were drastically different from his own. And we'll hear a bit more about that later. Paddy has travelled with economic migrants, been taught to fish by rural Mozambicans and lived with Hadza hunter-gatherers. He spent two months living with an indigenous tribe in the Amazon rainforest, then won a Royal Geographical Society Award to spend an entire year being taught by traditional wisdom keepers from another jungle culture. Paddy's book is featured on the 2023 Financial Times Best Book of Summer reading list and has earned praise from people like Jeremy Lent. Paddy says... The book aims directly at creating systemic change by providing people with both a holistic vision of a new economic system and the tools with which to build it. Paddy includes both positive real world examples and potential future developments, showing how people throughout society can help build a new system. Paddy will give us an overview of the six themes in the book, one of which is the circular economy. And we'll go a bit deeper with a couple of them, exploring different forms of company structures and learning more about regenerative organisations. So please give a warm welcome to Paddy LaFloofy, joining us from the coast of British Columbia in Canada. Paddy, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast.
1: Uh, Thanks, Catherine. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on.
0: Can we start by asking you to give us a quick sense of the big idea in the book? and what you see as the leverage points.
1: Sure, so the premise of the book is uh, that we need to fundamentally transform the economic system to avert the environmental catastrophe, and we can. And in the book, I aim to show how we can, Um, and there's a couple of kind of main elements to this in terms of the thinking of how we can get there. And the first is to recognize that the people at the top of the current system, such as political leaders and the bosses of multinational companies and those kind of people, generally speaking, don't want to change the system. So we can't look at solutions that rely on them doing them because they're not gonna want to do them. Um, However, there are a great many people throughout society who do want to stop the environmental crises And many of them recognize that to do so, we need to transform the economic system. There are also small groups of people who are developing and implementing innovations that transform specific parts of the system and that transforming them in ways that don't rely on us needing to persuade the political leaders to put them into action. So in the book, I bring together um, the best of these innovations for six uh, major elements of the system. I call these uh, organizational technologies. So those are um, processes, systems, and institutions that we use to organize society. And in this case, of course, the economic system. And I use real world examples to show how they can be implemented by people throughout society, the people who actually want to do it. Um, And... I also show how they can combine to create a genuinely new and much better system. Um, and then a second kind of issue, and this brings in the leverage points, is that the current system is very big and very complicated. And this means that to transform the system, we need to find uh, leverage points, which are places in the system where a relatively small change can create a cascade of positive effects throughout the system. and. These were described in detail by the great systems thinker Donella Meadows, um, and I actually focused mainly on a subset of leverage points, which I think of um, in kind of not quite so technical terms as um, going to the source. So uh, to give an example of this, businesses are currently causing quite a lot of problems in terms of environmental impact. So it's important to make sure the businesses stop causing these problems and have a positive effect they could have a very positive impact and obviously some do Um, and one approach to this is to find specific solutions to each of the issues so for example going net zero is a very popular solution for decarbonization and another slightly less popular but kind of in vogue solution at the moment is moving to a four-day working week Um, but if as Is shown in various cases, a profit-maximizing company uh, decides to aim for net zero, but still prioritizes maximizing their profits. Then they cut corners; they don't stop environmental impact on other areas apart from carbon emissions. They use, or suppose they're going to be able to use, far too much offsets, um, and generally, they a lot of them end up greenwashing. Mm. Um, And similarly, with a four-day working week, if a company goes to four days but is still profit maximizing then they're going to work their employees as much as they can in those four days they're not going to change their environmental impact unless they have to Uh, they're not going to give other benefits and so on and so forth and the issue with both of those the kind of source of the issue is the profit maximizing part Mm. so the solution the organizational technology that i described that approaches this in my book actually changes that um it's called the future guardian model and it's being pioneered by river simple a company in wales and they've redefined their company within it's within the bounds of the companies act 2006 so at least in the uk the law doesn't need to be changed in order to to do this they already are a future guardian company and they've changed it so that their uh kind of legal aim is to pursue a purpose which is written into their articles of association while balancing and protecting the interests of six stakeholder groups, the customers, the employees, the commercial partners, the investors, the community and the environment. So because the investors are one of those um, stakeholder groups, profit is still, they still do want profit, but it's no more important to them than the aims of the other stakeholder groups, such as Uh, having a better impact on the environment, treating their employees better, and so forth. So a future guardian company automatically, essentially, in the current situation, wants to aim for net zero or even real zero, which is obviously better. Um, And if their employees want to um, go to a four-day working week and it works within the situation of the company, then because one of the aims of a future guardian is to... uh, for the interests of the employees, they will want to do that four-day working week. So it's a changing that at the source from profit maximization to being stakeholder-based, which gives this cascade of positive effects such as net zero, four-day working week, whatever else it would be. Mm.
0: And I guess because it's all of the stakeholders being represented, the wishes of the employees wouldn't override the needs of the other stakeholders. So if for some reason four-day working week was really impractical or had a big impact on customer service then that would need to be you know refined or adjusted in some way and it sounds a little bit like um, well quite similar to a workshop that I did a few years ago um, first of all at the Institute for Manufacturing in Cambridge and then at the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership where we looked at um, sustainable stakeholder value and we did some workshops around a fictitious company and um, we each had to take on a stakeholder role and one of those stakeholders was the planet and we had to look at every part of the business model and the business processes from you know cradle to grave and think about where we were perhaps destroying value for one of the stakeholders, where value might be missing, where we were creating value and where value might be leaking out that wasn't being captured. And it was incredibly insightful in terms of thinking differently about how a company worked and what elements of value were just, just being left on the table, if you like. Um, and then we started to use more sustainable and circular um, approaches to create different forms of value and making sure that all of the stakeholders were... Um, you know, had a voice and were um, uh, taken into perspective and and kind of balanced. And um, we all found it, you know, all the people who were there found it incredibly um, inspiring on the one hand because it was just so simple. It was a few hours workshop and we could see how we could create a much more resilient, profitable and engaging business model that customers really loved um and you know at the same time it was much better for the environment and and better in all sorts of ways so i'm kind of really on board with that and excited to see um, what river simple do with that and and who else takes that up and before we go um through some of the other technologies as, as you as you call them the organizational technologies um let's go back to the beginning and ask how you came to write this in the first place what what inspired you
1: Yeah, sure. So I've had a slightly unusual background for someone writing about this. I actually, so initially I studied mathematics at Cambridge and then I became an accountant at KPMG in London. But the reason I became an accountant was that um, once I'd qualified, I could get short term contract work. So I used to work for six months at a time um, as a finance specialist at Accenture. And then I could use that money to go and do other things. And the thing that I was, I mean, I, kind of started going traveling and adventuring kind of thing but very quickly the thing that I got most um I focused on I spent my time doing was living in remote cultures um so I lived with hunter-gatherers in Tanzania and then I spent quite a long time in <clears throat> excuse me I spent quite a long time in the Amazon jungle with indigenous people there and that period culminated in 2014 when well I I 2013 slash 14, when I uh, won an award from the Royal Geographical Society that funded me to spend a year being taught by Indigenous wisdom keepers in the Amazon jungle. Um, and that was an amazing experience and very intense. And it was successful, but for lots of complicated reasons. It's a very complicated situation there. Um it wasn't a good idea for me to return and cause it was so intense and what have you, it, it was a good kind of culmination of that period. So then in early 2015, I kind of, I had money from my previous um, working as an accountant, a, work, a finance specialist, and um, I had a kind of open future. And of course I was increasingly worried about the environmental crisis. And at that point already in various places, the, um, people that I was living with in these remote cultures um, said they'd noticed the weather changing and the climate changing. And of course that's gotten much worse in recent years. And, um, but I could also see that through technological and societal innovations over the last kind of 60 or 80 years, um, we essentially have the opportunity to redesign society and make it much better. So a simple example is the internet didn't exist 40 years ago, and now it does exist. And obviously it's changed society in a lot of ways, but there are also ways in which we can change the actual underlying systems that structure society using things like the internet. Um, But, and also something that I'd found when I was with these people. So a lot of these kind of remote cultures are very poor, right? And they really do feel the poverty, like globally poor kind of level. And um, I remember there was one evening when the wisdom keeper who was teaching me said, um, Paddy, what, what good news is there for the poor people of the world? And um, he was very definitely one of the poor people of the world. And I was like, well, there are a few things. I knew nice little projects here and there, but that's not for the poor people of the world. That's for just a few of them. And I gave the example of where we were. We were in a river basin of about, Where 5,000 people lived. And I said, Well, look, if we could change this river basin and make it so everyone was, you know, had a better life kind of thing, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? And it was like, Yeah, of course. And I said, Yeah, but that's only 5,000 people. And there are thousands of millions of poor people in the world. And in order to change things, have good news for all of those people, what we have to do is change the dominant systemic structures to enable better outcomes. Um so yeah, I decided in twenty fifteen that I would focus on trying to understand how to do that. And partly because of my background um and various other reasons, I focused on the economy and the economic system. And that's led to Building Tomorrow and the essays I'm writing and so on.
0: Yeah. And what I love about the the book is that, as you said earlier, all the intervention points, the leverage points are things that can be done at societal level. They don't require governments to legislate. It's about groups of people getting together, like River Simple did, and deciding that, you know, we're going to do this this different thing, and then see how that kind of grows and, and evolves and scales out. So before we dive into a couple more of the technologies, could you just summarise the six for us so we've got them um, clearer in our minds?
1: Sure. Yeah. So the first one is uh, the donut, uh, which uh, I call it the donut development paradigm because I compare it to the current paradigm of economic growth as a societal goal. And this was invented by Kate Rayworth in, uh, I think, 2012, and it replaces the societal goal of economic growth with a new goal of aiming to meet the needs of all within the means of the living planet so there are the two sides meeting the needs of all means ensuring that everyone has enough of food education social networks and so on and so forth um and then within the means of the living planet means ensuring that collectively we don't overshoot the planetary boundaries such as climate change biodiversity loss uh, nutrient cycle messing up the nutrient cycles and those kind of things and both sides of this have been worked out in quite a bit of detail and it's drawn pictorially as a donut, like a donut with a hole in the middle type. So the inner circle is the social foundation and the outer ring is the ecological ceiling. And the aim is to get between those two. So kind of in the yeah. dough of the donut, to, as it were. To, yeah,
0: exactly, to stay in the in the doughy <laughs> bit where, the, where there is something, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then the second um, technology chapter is on the circular economy, which I don't think needs any introduction on this podcast. Um, But my approach in the chapter is to go through, I describe what it is, and then I go through exemplar case studies, like real world examples, to describe the main strategies for uh, building a circular economy. Um, And then the third one's the future guardian model, which is the one I mentioned earlier, that um, overcomes the imperative of profit maximization by redefining the purpose of the business so that it's run on behalf of all of its stakeholders rather than just the shareholders um, and then the next one is also about organizations and it's called <coughs> excuse me um, and it's called regenerative organizations so these are organizations that are structured so that their organizational structures themselves um, ensure they help uh, regenerate local economies while connecting them through global networks and i use four exemplar regenerative organizations that each um they're kind of different but complementary so they each have different structures and mm-hmm. they can be combined and adapted and so on
0: yeah and i want to, then, I want to unpack that a bit more in a, in a minute so yeah
1: yeah um and then the last two are on the monetary and financial systems so the first one's a sovereign money system this is a little bit technical but it actually changes the way in which money is created. So at the moment, money is created as interest-bearing debt by private banks. That's, and the Bank mm-hmm. of England says 97% of money in England is created in that way. Um, and the sovereign money system, so the, the exact sovereign money system I use, there are different types, but the one that I focus on was developed by Andrew Jackson and Ben Dyson at Positive Money, again, about 10 years ago. And um, <clears throat> it basically gives the ability takes the ability to create new money away from private banks and gives it to the central well like a public body, the kind of natural one is the central bank in coordination with the government. but there are other ways of doing it as well. But basically it's a and they've worked it out in a lot of detail and how the different aspects of it can work. Um, and it gives us uh, helps us overcome the need for economic growth and create a much more stable financial system. And it also gives governments many more tools with which to navigate our transition to a decarbonized society and the environmental disasters that are you know, beginning to happen kind of thing. Mm. And this is actually one that governments need to put in place because it's at the level of national currency. But a government in a small country could, or in any country that wanted to, could put it in place without needing international agreement. Um, And then the last chapter is on complementary currencies. So these focus on local level monetary systems and their ways of designing new types of money to solve specific economic problems. So a kind of simple example is a local currency, which is only available within a local economy, a local area, and is designed to build up the local economy. But there are loads of other types like token currencies and time banking and mutual credit systems. And in the chapter, I go through Again, exemplar um, case studies of each of the main types of currency because these are uh, complementary currency because these are also, you know, already used quite a lot as well.
0: Mm. Yeah, and um, yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with a few in the um, in the UK as well. So let's come back to the regenerative organisations technology because I found that fascinating. Can you unpack that a bit for us and perhaps talk us through um, one of the examples?
1: yeah sure so um yeah the regenerative organizations these are uh, organizational structures they're generally to a greater or lesser extent depending on the details but are basically network organizations and it's kind of um they're alternatives to the currently dominant corporate model of uh, a very centralized and hierarchical organization um and yeah, so to give an example, I'll talk through the example of um, Fab Labs. So Fab Labs are a network of maker spaces, so places that people can go and they've got all the tools with which to build things. Fab Labs was set up by MIT's Center for Bits and Atoms, CBA, um, in the early 2000s. And they wanted to uh, give people around the world, and they actually particularly wanted to help people in remote areas to um, have the tools they needed to be able to solve their problems in terms of kind of material things. So um, they, they set up an, a kind of ideal fab lab um, and they put the, the plan of it and description of it, and what have you, online and then encouraged and uh, for the first few funded as well, the um, other places to build their own fab labs and join and create a network and join the network. But it's not necessary for each fab lab to have exactly the setup of the ideal fab lab. The idea is that they should have the same capabilities so that anything that's made in one fab lab can be made in any other fab lab. And then in joining the network, they um, sign up to a charter and um Uh, need to fulfill various conditions. Uh, For example, one of them is that anything that's designed in a fab lab or made in a fab lab, the designs need to be uploaded onto the fab cloud, which is then accessible to everyone in every other fab lab. So this means that once something's invented in a fab lab, effectively, instantaneously, everyone in the, the entire network around the world can then make that same thing themselves in their own fab lab. Um, and there's also various other um, conditions, such as that they should have a su- suitable amount of public access, and they should um, contribute to the network, and so or you know have an active part in the network, and so mm. on and so forth.
0: So they're creating um, designs, not just being um, recipients or users of everything. You know, it should be. Yes, exactly. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, um, that, because they're makerspaces, that's mm. very much like getting people to make things type thing. Yeah. And, but it also sets up this collaborative development dynamic where, so for example, if someone invents a new, I don't know what it would be like a new, like anything new, <laughs> a piece of furniture or computer mm. or whatever it would be, um, they upload the design onto the cloud and then someone else can take that and they can improve it and then put their improvements on the cloud and other people can choose how they want to kind of build on that. And um, so Fab Labs is about maker spaces, but I think that a very similar kind of network system with adaptations could be used for um, for manufacturing facilities as well, like mm. commercial scale kind of thing, yeah. um, where you've got, say you've got, excuse me, Um, a facility, I use, in my book, I use an example of uh, cotton t-shirts because, um, as the kind of initial example and then show that this could be used, it could be, the same thing could be used in loads of other areas. But I use that because of the uh, T-Mills circular, uh, they've got circular cotton t-shirts. And so, if that kind of technology was put, created in a fab lab structure, so you've got a, a kind of local scale like kind of to supply a city um, t-shirt factory or whatever else kind of thing it would be but a factory with something the materials can be used on a circular basis and it supplies the local area and then other areas can also build their own uh, or groups in other areas and then they connect and share their development in terms of both in terms of their equipment and the kind of products that are produced in their factories Mm. and if that's combined with circular material flows. So in the case of cotton t-shirts, if you build a factory and you have enough cotton to fill uh, fill the material cycle, so there's cotton in the factory and people are wearing t-shirts and in the shops and in each part of the cycle, then that creates a new dynamic of, or it should create a new dynamic of um, approximate self-sufficiency because you don't mm. need more inputs. And then the same kind of thing could be used um, for metals and glass and, re- you know, truly recyclable plastics <laughs> um, and so on. And the, the overall aim becoming to create local areas that are have um, regional circularity, but are connected through these global networks so that... Um, there's a collaborative de- development dynamic. Mm. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's that sounds great. And it sounds, I can think of a few circular economy examples. Um, so it's similar to what uh, repair cafes and the Restart Project are doing, creating the model of how a repair cafe would work and then publishing that online so that anybody can set up their own repair cafe. Then yeah. there's iFixit with their global community of, Um, people you know tech tech nerds who like to do a product tear down on something and work out how to put it back together again and um, show people how to repair so again it's it's one person sort of doing the work and then sharing that with everybody worldwide and then people will pitch in to offer suggestions for how you could do this more easily or more quickly or um, you know find a workaround for a, a part that goes missing and there's um an old example i can't remember the name of it but there was a company that where you could buy furniture so you chose your design and then it was contracted to a local maker so it was one one global company with the designs and then lots of local makers providing the materials and you know making and delivering the um the furniture to you so there's, you know, there's there's lots of interesting ways to go with that. And it also fits into something that um, Walter Stahl mentions in his book. Um, he calls it intelligent decentralisation. So the decentralisation is the sort of um, local aspect of the Fab Lab, if you like. And the intelligent part is using the internet, using things like 3D printing, um, you know, other, other ways of bringing digital technology in, to improve the means of doing this. So that's the kind of intelligent intelligent part and connecting everything up. So I think there's, you know, there's, there's lots of overlap potential with circular economy businesses there. And this whole thing of localising, of course, reduces our carbon footprint, makes countries and regions more resilient, and connects people with What's local, and you can kind of refine things, can't you, to use locally available materials and and to make it much more place focused, which is another another thing that communities are particularly getting interested in. So, you know, I, I really like that that approach. Um, so, Paddy, we've not got time to go through all of the technologies today, and I really recommend people buy the book. I found it a really interesting read and very hopeful because. All of these things, you know, they're they're proven to work now. They're not, um, not something that requires an awful lot of big businesses or governments to get on board with. Um, they can all start small and and scale out, um, and you know, be kind of tested and tweaked as we move along. So, in in terms of writing the book, what did you struggle most with?
1: Uh, yeah, so I think I actually struggled most with the period between when i felt like i was ready to write a chapter and when i could actually write it so for a book like this i did loads and loads of research and i kind of set it out very clearly you know i i decided on how i was going to lay it out and i thought through all of these kind of things and then i have all of that done and then i'd sit down and try and write it and either i just couldn't find the words or It would, I'd write it and it would just be like, ah, just doesn't have a nice tone or it's a bit boring or I've got it too complicated or I just couldn't quite get it. And then I'd have to wait and, you know, have a few tries. But really, a a large part of it was just waiting and, you know, allowing my subconscious to do whatever it was doing. Um, And then sometime I'd sit down and write and then I could write the chapter quite quickly. But that period, this is my first book as well. So that period between feeling like I ought to be able to write it and, actually writing it was quite kind of frustrating and difficult you know but um it did seem to work out i do the the by far the most common thing that people say especially like friends who aren't massive into this kind of area say is that it's it is very readable Mm. um so evidently that that period did work kind of thing yeah absolutely also on um uh, just from what you're saying before about the book one of the things in the yeah so it's full of real world examples and I've also like one of the things I was doing was specifically and explicitly saying these should be spread more widely and how they can be and examples of things that people might do. And for example, with the regenerative organisations, I've got the four organisations and near the start of the chapter, once I've explained a little bit, I described them in... Um, uh, single, very generalised sentences to show how they can be applied much more widely to anything that that sentence applies to kind of thing. So I've really written it specifically to give people ideas and inspiration mm. to actually put things into action.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I found that very interesting. And, and, you know, just as we were talking about, as I was reading through the book, I was kind of thinking, no, oh, well, that's a bit like this circular economy example or this local economy example. Um, And so it, you know, it it made it feel all the more real in that I could see other examples of things that I knew worked and were viable and profitable and and so on. Um, And that, you know, people loved. So why wouldn't this work and and scale out? And Paddy, if you were talking to a business leader who wanted to take some of your ideas on board, where would you advise them to start?
1: Yeah, so. I would say they should start with what um, the Donut Economics Action Lab describes as the deep design of business. So these are the um, underlying structures that frame the range of possibilities within which they can work. So, for example, the ownership structure, the governance structure and finance Uh, purpose and networks are the five things they look at. But one example uh, is the issue of shareholder value maximization or profit maximization, which frames the kinds of things that a business can do because only the ones that are most profitable, essentially. Um, So and I think a good place to start is imagine you didn't, like think through what those limits are and then imagine you didn't have those limits and think about what you could do if you didn't and then um, work to change, make changes to those limits. So, you know, obviously the example in my book, the main one is uh, moving to the future guardian model, but it might be changing board representation or actually Deal has in their business area, they have loads of kind of specific examples that apply to specific types of businesses kind of thing. And then the future guardian model is much more widely applicable, but it's also quite a big step to To move to kind of thing, Mm. although I am actually working and I'm in touch with um, Estelle Clark, the now former but the steward of River Simp, the person who's the steward of River Simple for the entire early stages kind of thing, Um, and we're we're following up on any leads for um, spreading the Future Guardian model. So if anyone's interested in doing so, please do get in touch.
0: Yeah, fantastic. That would be great to see another company, maybe somewhere else in the world, um, starting to look at how they could integrate that and. I guess it reminds me of one of the things that the World Economic Forum were doing a few years ago, where they were they had this program, I think it was called uh, scale, and they got organisations together in a particular city around the world. So there'd be some businesses, some policy makers, um, some citizens and so on. And they looked at what the local barriers were to the circular economy, and then they tried to look at well, how do we how do we get around these? How could we tweak policy? Um, you know is there something that businesses can do differently so it's that kind of approach isn't it of thinking clearly about the barriers and then looking at well you know is there a baby step we can do instead or can we start appealing to politicians to remove this this barrier because it's you know it's it's not serving society anymore yeah so-
1: and one uh good approach kind of general good approach to these kind of things i think is to look at the uh, kind of suspend disbelief about the the issues and challenges, but look at uh, where you really want to get to in the kind of, you know, ideal future type thing, and then strategize and think about, well, what are the steps that can get us in that direction from here? And then kind of iterate to get a a path. Uh, But yeah, looking, having a big ambition for the future and then thinking about the steps one by one to get
0: there from where
1: we are now is a good way of creating transformative change i think
0: yeah having having this um bold future vision and then backcasting from there to see um you know what what the pathway is to get there um exactly and i think um mckinsey whilst i'm loath to <laughs> loath to quote one of the big <laughs> management consultancies um but they did some research to say that this kind of middle term was the sticky bit that lots of businesses forgot they had their bold long term ambition and they had their short term plans and the kind of you know getting from short term to long term was all just a bit of a cloudy mess and that's the bit that you need to focus on is you know what are the steps in the in the medium towards the long term yeah so yeah. yeah and paddy is there somebody that you'd recommend as a future guest for the podcast
1: uh, yes, there is. So I would say uh, a guy called Roland Whitehead, who's the technical dile- director of something called Circular Evolution. So this is something we didn't actually have time to talk about, but uh, River Simple, the guys who are doing the Future Guardian model, they are developing, I, well, I've seen one or two little things recently that sound like they might be in the same direction. You'll probably know whether there are others doing this quite seriously, but they're developing a new part of the circular economy of moving sale of service up the supply chain so they offer or will offer their vehicles on sale of service but also getting the fuel cells on sale of service and within the fuel cells the membranes and within the membranes the platinum and this has potentially revolutionary Mm -hmm. effects uh, but it's very complicated to do because you need to um track all the parts and their usage mm. and what have you so um river simple in association with the university of exeter and swansea university set up a research kind of lab or whatever called circular evolution and yeah roland whitehead is the technical director of circular Re- revolution and hugo spowers is the founder of river simple and the mm. kind of visionary behind these kind of things so either of those two to talk about that i think would be great
0: yeah brilliant thank you and um yeah i've heard hugo speak a few years ago again at the institute for manufacturing in in cambridge and that was really inspiring and um yeah i can't wait to see uh, river simple kind of fledge into a um you know a, a real live business that that people can see the cars on on the road and, yeah i know, you know it's frustrating of, uh, how long it's off. taking isn't it but... yeah so and paddy if you could wave a magic wand and change just one thing to help create a better world what would that be
1: um, yeah so uh it would be a general kind of redirection of um the people who the motivated people who want to you know have positive, create positive transformation or want it to happen so that um uh they move the kind of zeitgeist at the moment obviously there are loads of people who are working on solutions but a large part of the zeitgeist is to hope that governments and big business and what have a and what have you will um do enough kind of thing. So redirecting that to all of those people, I kind of call them the passionate millions at times, um, realizing that it's not about getting governments and people who don't really want to to do things. We can do it ourselves and just putting our time, energy, resources, money, intelligence into like pushing and also all of these people uh, understanding how we can effectively and efficiently create positive transformation. But, yeah a kind of general mobilization.
0: Yeah. So going beyond the phrase that I use from time to time voting with our wallets, but voting with all of our actions and finding things that we can do practically that start to signal to governments and businesses that you know this is this is the way we're going, um either get on get on board or go extinct.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, brilliant. So Paddy, how can people find out more and get in touch?
1: Uh yeah. So fortunately I have a unique name, um, Paddy LaFluffy. Uh so it's relatively easy. So my website's paddylafloofy.com. Um I my book's Building Tomorrow, Averting Environmental Crisis with a New Economic System.
0: Yeah. Again, for people watching on YouTube. There you go.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um I can hold my coffee up as well. <laughs> um and um uh, yeah. my main social media are LinkedIn and Twitter I'm actually quite new to using them in this kind of way so please do follow and connect and what have you um, and again just search for Paddy LaFloofy I've also got a Substack, so I'm doing a series of essays at the moment um, and my sub stack paddy paddylafloofy.substack.com and if you would like to get in touch about anything to do with this then my email is tomorrow at paddylafloofy.com
0: great stuff. But well, I'll put all those links in the show notes as well so people can follow up and get in touch. And I highly recommend the book. It's a great read and gives you a really, you know, hopeful feeling for the future because it is so practical and there are things that, you know, can easily be done and exist now in in pockets around the world. So thank you so much for sharing your time uh, to talk us through your learnings and the ideas in the book and I think that, you know, the the new technologies, they are relatively simple, and yet they have the potential to be really game-changing and to move us towards a better world. So, Paddy, thank you very much.
1: And thank you very much for having me, Catherine. It's been very enjoyable. Thank you.
0: So there you go, another episode of the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you to Paddy Le our thought-provoking guest this week, and I encourage you to buy his book building tomorrow, averting environmental crisis with a new economic system. So you can dig into the other system changes Paddy sees as critical for building a better world from the bottom up. You can find out more about Paddy LaFloofy, his book and his ongoing work and check out the other links we mentioned in the show notes at (laughs) circulareconomypodcast.com. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, the company I started to help you succeed with Circular. You can find information on my talks, workshops and advice, plus Circular Economy resources at rethinkglobal.info. And you can connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn. I believe we can all help make the circular economy happen through the choices we make at work and in our everyday lives. Buying pre-used, keeping what we have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. Those choices send strong signals to companies and governments, making it clear we all want a better, circular and regenerative future. We can do better with less. We can all help spread the word too. Talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and review on your podcast app. If you're just starting out with the circular economy, why not check out our Getting Started playlist on the podcast homepage? You can also buy my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business. It takes you through the concepts and practicalities with hundreds of real examples from all around the world. We've made it easier for you to find episodes on the key circular economy strategies or for a market sector or specific countries. Check out the Interactive Podcast Index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at circulareconomypodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening to the end And if you like what you're hearing, please hit subscribe and I'll see you next time.